When Daisy Hernandez was six years old, her life changed. She would forever be aware of the existence of the kissing bug, an insect that caused an illness that afflicted her tia Dora and that defined the course of her life and the lives of her family. She didn't know too much about the illness beyond the name Chagas, the shorthand form of referring to the disease. Chagas was named for a Brazilian doctor who studied the disease. As an adult, even in her 30s, all Daisy Hernandez knew is that her tia Dora had endured a long, painful battle full of suffering against the disease and its many related effects. Daisy started to investigate. The experience became an exhaustive, years-long study of the disease and all of its attendant issues. In her book, The Kissing Bug, a true story of a family, an insect, and a nation's neglect of a deadly disease, Daisy Hernandez tells the story about how poverty, racism, and public policies have conspired to keep the disease hidden. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. I spoke to author Daisy Hernandez about The Kissing Bug. The New York City Hospital is a black, cavernous mouth. I am six and I am not afraid. Bolting from the elevator, I run down the corridor ahead of my mother and baby sister, my sneakers squealing on the clean floors. The doors are half open. The doors are invitations. A cuarto here belongs to us. The room holds the Adora, my mother's sister, my auntie mother. A single window in the room stretches toward the ceiling and Theodora is there with her pointy chin and thin face. The Spanish words tiptoe from her mouth. Mi vida, she murmurs when she sees my mother. Theodora rises onto her elbows. The gown sways on her small frame. She smiles at me with approval. My mother has combed my black hair into two ponytails. My sister, almost a year old, giggles in her summer dress. Outside, the Manhattan heat licks our faces, but in the hospital, in my auntie's room, the cold air bites our ears. The doctors have sewn a line of dark stars across Theodora's belly, la cicatrices, and they have told her a word my mother whispers when she thinks I am not listening, Chagas. No one in the hospital that day, or for many years after, told me that Chagas is a parasitic disease transmitted to humans by triotomine insects called kissing bugs, the parasite can often be eradicated with medication when a person is initially infected. Few people though are diagnosed and fewer receive treatment, which means the single cell parasite Trypanosoma cruzi can spend up to 30 years in the human body, quietly interrupting the electrical currents of the heart, devouring the heart muscle, leaving behind pockets where once healthy tissue existed. In the worst cases, the heart can eventually die. The illness has come to be known in English as the kissing bug disease. Oh, thank you so much for reading that. So he- here is this story, um, and it, but it seems to me to be the beginning of your story with, with Chagas. Can you tell me about your earliest awareness with this disease? Sure. My my earliest awareness was really what I just read, being in the hospital, visiting my auntie. Um, this was a Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center, what it was called back then in, in New York City. Well, at that age, of course, I was only five or six, so I actually didn't quite grasp that 
the, there was an adult who was sick, right? I simply, you know, you accept things as being so normal. And so I accepted that my auntie was in this hospital and she would spend weeks at a time in this hospital. And over the years, as I grew up, she was in and out of hospitals. And it wasn't until I was around 12 or 13 that uh, another family member began to explain a little bit about the illness, but it really took many years and, and it sort of coincided with my growing up to understand that she had this parasitic disease. I thought it was very, very rare. I thought she was maybe, you know, one of very few people in the entire world who had it. And so many decades later, it was such a shock to me to discover that there are millions, you know, 6 million people who have this disease, mostly in South America, Central America and Mexico. Uh, and also 300,000 people here in the U.S. who are like my auntie, who are um, Latinx and migrants. Um, so, yeah, that's that's been my journey. I sort of grew up, my grow, growing up coincided with learning about the disease. It does seem like it was, like it's just been a fact of your life for such a long time. And tell us about that moment that you decided to take up this mantle and immerse yourself in this research. I mean, it, this is a puzzle and to learn more about Chagas and really to put some pieces together in this puzzle that no one seems to have managed before you, like just to take this piece and this piece and this piece and to put it together as you've done with this book. What was that moment when you said, I'm, I'm going to dedicate myself to this? Yeah, so what's, what happens with this disease is that in its chronic form, uh, people can live with this for decades and decades. Um, most people actually live with the parasite and don't have any health problems. But then about one in three people who are infected end up like my auntie having severe health issues over the course of their lifetime. And it wasn't actually until she died. Um, I was in my 30s at that point, And her death came as such a shock to me. Because she had been sick for so long, I never actually expected her to die from the disease. I expected her to live into very old age. And that's not what happened. And in the wake of her death, I realized how little I actually knew about this disease that had basically been in my life from such a young age. And when I started to read about it, I really came, you know, became such a shock to find out that it was not a rare disease, but rather a neglected one. And that, that, you know, it was such a shock to me to learn that the World Health Organization has an entire list of diseases that are neglected. That's what they have in common is that they're neglected, but they're very pervasive. And of course, they're outside of the United States and outside of Western Europe, and uh, and they affect you know more than a billion people. Um, you know, it just it came as such a shock, and I wanted at that point I wanted to learn more, and I also ended up having a lot of questions around whether there were other families like my own who were struggling with Shaga's disease or the kissing bug disease, and curious if there were other people like my auntie, other people like myself, and, and you know, what their lives looked like with this disease, because it had been such a almost family secret in a way, right? My auntie never wanted other people to know exactly what she had. Um, she was very afraid of being stigmatized around a, a disease that most Americans don't know. 
And so it was really in the wake of her passing that I became uh, curious and determined to learn more. And then at the same time, Yvette, as you probably know from speaking with so many authors, you know, you, you start researching, you start asking questions, you don't quite know right away that you're committing, you know, the next seven years of your life to a book project. <laughs> and, and that's also part of what happened. You know, I thought it might be an essay or that it might be a, just one article. And it, um, it became so much more because I, you know, there were the stories of the patients. And then I realized as I was, as I read more, I realized uh, this parasite has been in the Americas for many, many years. It's a very old parasite. They have found DNA evidence of it in mummies. Um, then I found out about Charles Darwin and his possible connection with this parasite and the disease. And so it just kept, you know, unfolding, which, which I hope I've captured in the book, <laughs> that it just, you know, I kept finding another piece and another piece, and then suddenly... I realized I think this needs to be a book, especially I also felt like as I learned more, I felt that it needed to be a book for other families like mine, because it was astonishing to me that this disease that afflicts 6 million people in the Americas does not have a book in English for a general reader. You know, there are some scientific and medical texts, right? Um, but those are very specialized. It was really surprising to me that there wasn't a story, um, a book available for us. And that's the thing, you know, um, when you say to somebody, have you ever heard of, of the kissing bug disease or even have you, have you ever heard of Chagas, that they might look at you and say, oh, yeah, or oh, yes, I ha we have the kissing bugs in our yard. You know, I saw one on my tomato plant or whatever. And yet... We think of the disease as rare, but it, it's not that it's rare. It, it is, as you say, neglected. And that's, that's the paradox of this thing that I think is so frustrating and mind-boggling and, and so many other things that it's, we think of it as rare because people don't talk about it. And in fact, um, it's, it's something for which... We, there can be a cure if it's if it's identified early on. Um, so there's so many pieces to this puzzle. And as you say, it, it what could it have been an essay? Could it have been um, a more immediate work or a shorter work? But one of the things I appreciate about in-depth narrative journalism and books like this one that introduce and explain something to me in such clear terms is that it is still at its heart a well-wrought story, a page-turner. <laughs> um, I really appreciate that. Uh, you know, I, I, I like to think that I'm a, I'm a little bit science-minded, but I'm not. <laughs> and I just, <laughs> I really learned so much. I mean, just the idea that when you give blood which, you know, I on occasion do. I didn't know they were screening for, for uh, this parasite. I had no idea. Um, and, and it goes on, the things that I, that I learned, the ways that it can affect a person, the ways the parasite lives in the body, devastates 
organs and and does all of these things. But this is at its heart. It it is a story. It is it's a story about you. It's a story about your family, your tiadora, but also the other families that that you got to know and that you got to interview and whose story that that you tell. But and then it's a story beyond that and beyond beyond your immediate family circle into Texas, into California, into large cities where immigrants live, uh, and into Colombia and into the rest of the world. So I just, I really appreciate all of the different things that, uh, that I learned about um, this, the kissing bug disease. I mean, who would have thought this is a bug that I've seen, I think, my entire life in my yard. And, you know, we would, we would call it a chinche. We would say, <laughs> watch out with the chinche. And that was about it. That was the admonition. And that, and that was it. We had no idea what else was, was going on. Yeah. You're reminding me that there was a, a man that I write about in the book who explained to me, there are little chinches and big chinches and the kissing bug is a big chinche. <laughs> uh, and in Texas, Texas is so fascinating. I, I never expected to end up there because I, I associated the disease so deeply with only South America, actually. So part of learning about this was also learning, oh, we have these insects, these triatomine insects in the United States. They've been identified now in 30 states, actually. And Texas has an incredible variety of species. I think at last that I uh, reported, it had the most diversity of species in the United States. And people have been aware of them, as you're saying, your entire life. And and people have there historically have also called it um, bloodsuckers, right? They, that's yeah. how it was sort of known at one time was as a bloodsucker because of um, the way that it bites and can, I mean, these insects can live for a long time on one feeding of a, a person, a dog, any kind of mammal, um, which is just, uh, you know, gives you an indication of sort of how hardy and how, you know, how they're able to persevere um, over time. Well, Texas is a big part of the story of the kissing bug. Can, and you, can you share a little bit about, I felt like it was um, one of those uh, ghost adventure shows <laughs> where you're out there in the dark, uh, you know, just uh, sort of setting yourself up to face and square off with this very scary situation. Can you share a little bit about that night that you spent in Texas hunting uh, the kissing bug? Yeah, I ended up actually in Texas because there's phenomenal work that's being done um, on the kissing bug disease by uh, a veterinarian at Texas A&M and College Station, uh, Dr. Sarah Hamer and her colleagues there they had actually identified that the kissing bug disease is uh, pretty prevalent in dogs across the state. And so we knew before she started doing this work, what the experts knew was that you could you would definitely find it in dogs in South Texas. But she went and looked um, at dogs across the entire state. And as I don't have to tell all of your listeners, but there's a lot of different environmental regions, eco-regions within the state. It's so so expansive. And so the fact that these insects um, are throughout the state, that dogs are having contact with them, either the bugs are biting them or they're eating the bugs, you know, probably a little bit of both, um, says a lot, right, about how um, 
just uh, how prevalent um, the parasite is in, in, these, uh, in these insects. And she found that overall about 9% of dogs in shelters actually have the, the kissing bug disease or Chagas disease. And in some places like San Antonio, it was a bit, it was higher, it was 14%. Um, and so I actually went to, to see the work that she was doing to interview her and they go out into the field to also track these bugs. Again, trying to establish how, how pervasive is the parasite in insects in Texas. And so I went with her research assistants. Um, I should, I should, you know, tell you that as I write about in the book, I am actually terrified of insects. So it was a little unusual for me to sign up for this, but at that point, I felt like I also needed to see the work that was being done with my own eyes rather than hearing about it. And I honestly did not expect that we would catch anything that night. I was just going out for one night. I, I just expected that, um, you know, that it would be a hunt without, you know, an unsuccessful hunt, I guess you could say, or trapping. Um, and it was, you know, we ended up finding at least three insects that night in a very short amount of time. And this was uh, just right there in that Texas A&M College Station, just near the campus area. Uh, it was it was quite the shock to see how easy it was to find them. And as you're saying, you grew up seeing them. Um, you know, I think Texans are familiar with them, even if they have other names for them or or don't associate them with Chagas disease. Um, yeah, it, it was quite an evening. It was, you know, I've never done anything like that because I'm terrified of insects. So it was really interesting to, um, to sit there and to be looking in sort of half lit, half dark areas. Uh, all the insects look the same to me, <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> like they all looked really creepy. And, and so it was wonderful to be with these two research assistants who knew exactly what they were looking for. Uh, already had experience with trapping them um, because the insects are pretty weak flyers. And that said, there was one insect that got away from us that I was astonished at, at the fact that it's a weak, they don't fly very well, but they skirt kind of like, and I think in the book, I described it like, you know, like somebody who's drunk and is staggering through the air, <laughs> yes. but it meant that we could not catch it. And it got away from us, which just really astonished me that this insect, um, that is not such a great flyer. doesn't have a lot going for it in some ways. Um, <laughs> still able to escape. It was, it was pretty, pretty incredible. And that said, I always feel like this is the point or, you know, at some point I need to say that, you know, People in Texas do not have to be alarmed or worried overall. It's, um, you know, this is not a, a crisis for us in the United States in terms of the kissing bugs that we have here. And that's probably largely because most of us have good protection against the insects. You know, there's there was one study that was done that showed that you had to have like hundreds of times of exposure to these insects in order, to, you know, for your chances to actually uh, increase in terms of catching the parasite. Mm -hmm. um, so, so it's not a crisis in that sense. It is very arbitrary because I have interviewed people in Texas and California who had very minimal exposure, like one camp outing and they just 
happened to unfortunately come into contact with a kissing bug and ended up getting infected. Um, so there's sort of an arbitrary nature to it, but it's not, um, it's not a crisis in the same way that it's, it's really a crisis for the Latinx community, the Latinx migrant community. It's really a public health issue there. Does that make sense? Yes, exactly. I mean, we, I think now a lot of us know more about something, let's say like Lyme disease, um, mm -hmm. but to see like a kissing bug outside on your tomato plant or, you know, out on the porch or whatever would not raise alarms for us or shouldn't, as you say, it is a very arbitrary thing. And I know in, in one story you describe if a house is very porous and, you know, and there is this, this prevalence of this insect that can come in, I mean, in droves to attack a warm human body that's one thing versus, you know, you, you go back inside, you close the door and you're, you're essentially safe from it. Um, but I, but I hear what you're saying about the arbitrariness. It, it's the way I think about Lyme disease. I think it's, it's sort mm -hmm. of in that same realm, but, but also the, what you're saying about the incidents for the Latinx community, I mean, part of the story that you've uncovered here. Uh, is one about racial politics. Can you can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, for me, at the right at the beginning when I started doing research, it was such a shock to learn that there's three hundred thousand people in the United States who have this, and one in three will go on to develop cardiac problems. And so, really early on, what I started to um, appreciate was the incredible list of barriers that are in place for someone from the Latinx community who has Chagas disease. For starters, they actually don't necessarily know about Chagas disease. So even though there's 6 million people, mostly in Latin America, it's still not well known, depending on where you are. Some in some countries, there's just more awareness than in other countries. So for starters, you don't actually even know about the disease yourself, even though you're part of this demographic that should be aware of it. Um, and then second, you know, this is disproportionately people who grew up in poor communities and spent considerable amount of time in rural communities in, um, in South America, Mexico, and Central America. So here in the United States, they oftentimes do not have health insurance. Uh, if they're undocumented, you know, they're having to really rely on those safety net hospitals. Even if they are documented, like a one of the women that I profile in the book who has a green card is on her way to citizenship uh, you have to wait five years before you qualify for Medicaid as a, as a, as an immigrant who has that green card or has legal residency. So there are just these barriers that are in the way that that, that are policy issues, right? Mm -hmm. And at the same time, there's another set of barriers, which is that this is going to be community. The people who are infected are going to be largely Spanish language um, speakers and. Our system, you know, depending on where you're living in the United States, it's not set up for Spanish language speakers. Um, so one person that I profile in the book, he he was calling several clinics and he actually did speak uh, English. And I had a little bit of a chance to talk to him in English. We were mostly talking in Spanish and his English is great. I could understand him. But 
none of the infectious disease specialists that he was calling in his area had ever heard of Chagas disease, or, or at least the receptionist could not get him to the point where, you know, she, he could talk to someone who knew about the disease. And so he blamed his own language skills for that kind of barrier, you know, and thought, well, maybe it's me. They don't understand what I'm saying. Um, but I found that even with myself, I decided to get tested for Chagas disease. And I had to inform my primary care doctor. I had to be very assertive and tell her, you know, I need this kind of test to be ordered. And she said, well, I'll consult with the infectious disease specialist here. And so there were just a lot of uh, hoops to go through. And I was able to do that because I was able to take time off work for also for repeat appointments, right? Um, so most people who have Chagas disease, Latinx migrants in the United States don't have the luxury of health insurance with a job, don't have the luxury of being able to take time off from work to have those medical appointments, to educate their own doctors about the disease. So it, it's quite quite a number of barriers. Um, I write about in the book, I also write about a patient in Texas who, who died from this disease. And, um, you know, she, she did not have insurance. She needed to get a heart transplant. She would have probably been a very good candidate for a heart transplant. Um, but, you know, because of poverty and because of race and policy, she did not uh, qualify for that. Um, as part of, you know, Medicaid was not going to pay for her to have a heart transplant and she died from this disease. And that was particularly moving to me because not only of her death being completely unnecessary, but also to see her doctor who treated her for over a decade, uh, her doctor started crying, you know, about this patient when she was telling me about her. And it just, it really made me understand more deeply that, you know, it's not only patients and their families that are being affected um, in terms of this kind of racial and economic impact, but it's also the doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals who form relationships with these patients over so many years and then have to send them home to die, essentially. I keep thinking about the Adora, and, and I wonder, what do you think she would have made of a book like this out in the world, informing, enlightening, educating us about such important issues? What would she have made of it all? I think she would have had very, very mixed feelings about it. She began, she didn't want people to know that she had this disease when she was first here in the United States, not even first here actually for you know, for quite, quite a number of years. But I think that towards the end of her life, and maybe as a consequence of, of, of her, her illness um, progressing so, so much, she was starting to change a little bit. Um, and I, I think she was starting to talk about it a little bit more openly, um, at least even within our own family, I guess I could say it that way. I think she would have had very mixed feelings about her story being out in the world. I think she would have also appreciated everything that I learned because there's very little in the book that she herself knew about. 
she, she never knew that there were so many people in the United States who had this disease. She definitely didn't know that you could find these insects here. I think all of that would have been very surprising to her. Um, and as I write, as I write in the book, we had a, a very complicated relationship because I came out as bisexual in my twenties and she didn't talk to me for many years, actually. Um, she really struggled with having a queer niece slash daughter. Um, and so I don't know. I don't know how. I, I think that would have been really a hard part of the book, that I'm very open in the book about my sexuality and that being a difficult part of our relationship. So I, I think she would have had mixed feelings. But I have to say that just getting to know what she was like. I mean, she seemed like she was such a force, even when her body was ravaged by the disease and she was so thin and weak, she just kept going and she prized so many things that you also prize. Absolutely. Absolutely. She was very much, and she was, a, you know, an incredible woman in so many ways. Um, you know, she did end up becoming a school teacher in the United States she ended up being able to teach for so many years in the public school system. And she taught Spanish. She taught Spanish language to elementary school children, which was amazing. And she found the love of her life. And she had a very amazing life, which was also part of what I wanted to write about. Because sometimes when we have a book about a chronic illness or when we hear about someone having a chronic illness, we... We just think it's all difficult all the time. And the story is more complicated. There's a lot of joy as well in, in, in a person's day-to-day -day life. And I think that was true for Diadora as well. She got to travel. She got to do a lot of things that you, you know, I don't know that she expected she would necessarily get to have when she was growing up in Colombia in a family that was a very, very modest means. Um, I don't know that she ever expected um, she wanted, but I don't know that she ever expected to get to do all that she did with her life. But that's, that's something very interesting that you mentioned, because it's something I saw reflected, for example, in, in Janet, uh, whom you also profile, who, whose baby was very sick. How industrious are these Latinx women? How industrious are they? And, and what a, uh, a will to survive and to do whatever it takes to uh, help their family members survive. I mean, the, the road to recovery for Janet's baby was, uh, I mean, in and of itself, uh, just a, such a gripping story. But there, there are so many stories within stories in this book. And that's one in particular that uh, that I walk away with is that in spite of everything that the Latinx community has to go through in these sorts of contexts that are related to uh, racial policies or or healthcare or uh, fill in the blank, right? All of these different things, language barriers and other barriers, that the, that the story here really is one of resilience and strength somehow. Um, it is also a story about that, I think. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you mentioned Janet, who I write about in the book, because she did remind me so much of my auntie um, coming to the United States and uh, just working so hard, but that being so determined 
um, to have this beautiful life and create a family and a life for herself here. Just that level of determination was incredible. And to be honest, I also just, um, Janet has a special place in my heart too, because it was very difficult for her to talk to me about her baby. That was such a painful experience. And it's what you're saying that that resilience, she, she was not only in terms of herself, but also she really wanted to help me raise awareness for other Latinx mothers um, because she didn't want anyone to go through the experience that she went to, went through. And she said that to me several times. And, um, and I interviewed her over the course of several years. And it was incredible to see that even though she was very hesitant about having, you know, her own story, you know, out in the world, she was, she was doing it in order to really help other, specifically other Latinx moms, because for a Latinx migrant woman who's coming from South America or Central America or Mexico, if, if they receive treatment, it, it seems to also help their odds of lowering their chances of passing it on to their baby during pregnancy. And that was something that, you know, if Janet had been if she had known she had the disease, if she had been able to receive treatment prior to her pregnancies, there's a chance she might not have had to um, go through that terrible experience and that her son might have been, have not had to go through that experience as well. But it's, um, it's amazing for her to share her story with us. Daisy Hernandez, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate talking to you. Thank you for having me. Daisy Hernandez is the author of The Kissing Bug, a true story of a family, an insect, and a nation's neglect of a deadly disease. She's professor of creative writing at Miami University in Ohio. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Kathleen Creedon is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides.